Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden and natural world. I'm your host, Misty Little. All right, this episode is a little bit different in that I've actually already wrote this as a blog post, but it's something that I'm very passionate about, something I've been thinking about for months, honestly years, and I wanted to turn it into a episode for your ears in case maybe you don't have time to read blogs, but you do have time to listen to a podcast on your commute or while you're working or working out or whatever. And I thought it was just, it's something I wanted to share in multiple avenues. And so blog post to podcast, here it goes. As you might've guessed by the name of the podcast episode, we're going to talk about native plants and more specifically, how can we keep talking about native plants if there's not really native plants to buy. And you might be like, what? What are you talking about, Misty? So it's a discussion my husband and I get into on occasion is, you know, how can gardeners grow native plants when there aren't native plants to buy? Okay, so there are native plants to buy, but really the diversity of native plants is kind of terrible. And as you'll see further as I go along, um, I hope to lay all of that out. So to take this idea further, um, some gardeners and ecologists, they think gardeners should be growing by ecoregion or habitat type and not by USDA hardiness zone, which is the prominent method of identifying plants that will grow within a certain gardening region. And so a lot of this came up because of some recent discussions on social media, which prompted me to kind of really ruminate on this issue and write more about it. And I I really wanted to just branch out and put it out there for the world. So let's talk about this vitriolic topic sometimes that's in the gardening world, native plants. And, you know, caveats before I keep going, I write, I'm talking about this from a mostly Texas viewpoint, um, but you can extrapolate this for sure to other regions and states. And I also grow native and non-native plants. And I've definitely been focusing on native plants more in recent years, but I'm definitely not going to give up some of my non-native tropicals. Okay, onward. So there's a few issues at hand here that I've kind of bulleted out. So a diverse and locally native plant landscape for home gardeners is not really easily within reach to the majority of home gardeners. Next, nursery stock to create a diverse home landscape for gardeners on the scale touted by native plant enthusiasts just doesn't exist and is consistently unsupported by the horticulture industry. Most homeowners will never delve into gardening, native or otherwise, and gardeners should be intensely focusing on preserving large existing tracts of undeveloped land within the suburban urban wildland interfaces to counteract the shortcomings of these native home plant landscapes. So really the thought process and the problem with it all. So first off, I really don't think that this thought process about growing natives for your specific region and habitat is entirely wrong. And I actually like the idea of everyone growing regionally adapted native plants. The problem is, it's actually nearly impossible to do for home gardeners. I can go to any of the four or five main independent nurseries in the Houston area that sell native plants, and they're going to each have a separate small section of native plants and most will carry a similar crop of species between them that are available for sale, likely purchased from the same propagator. Now, are there variation in what is available? Sure, sometimes I'll find a jewel of a plant to buy. I can recall finding an endangered Gallardia Histovalis variety Winkleri, aka Winkler's blanket flower, at a nursery several years ago, but I haven't seen it for sale again. 
And I might add, I'm only talking about perennial herbaceous species for the most part, but you can definitely extrapolate this to shrubs and trees when discussing this issue. You know, I definitely get annoyed when I ask people about native hawthorn species and I get taken to a row of Indian hawthorn, which is a very common uh, landscaping shrub here in Texas and I think quite a bit of areas in the South. So Texas is a massive state and, you know, we have a wide geographic expanse it means there's drastic differences in habitat types throughout the state. I live on the edge of the piney woods in the post oak savanna and really close to the Gulf prairies and marshes. And what grows here is a lot different than what can be grown over in Austin. And well, if you've ever been to Austin, you know what grows east and west of I-35 can be vastly different because the soil types are different. And clearly what grows in El Paso and is native there is not going to be the same thing as what grows in Beaumont and is native there. The Chihuahuan desert plants in El Paso are much more likely to be plants you can find in Mexico and New Mexico, while the humid subtropical species in Beaumont will be plants you can find in Louisiana and other parts of the Deep South. And yet, if you go to nurseries in Houston, San Antonio, Austin, or DFW, you'll find a lot of crossover in species that may or may not do well in more than one of those locations. Will some plants sold in Dallas and Houston work in both locations? Of course, there will be plenty of native plants that have a wide range throughout the state. But both areas have different amounts of precipitation, soils, and cold weather each year, and plants that will act differently in each location. More drastic would be plants sold in San Antonio and Austin, but also sold in Houston locations. I'm thinking of Blackfoot Daisy, Melampodium leucanthum, which I have killed multiple plants of after we built our flower beds about a decade ago, before I realized that Houston was just too wet for them. They are marketed as native, and because they are native within the state, but I certainly didn't pull out a range map when I was at doing my purchase at the time and didn't know better. I would guess that most other gardeners aren't doing that either. So why are they even sold here? Could someone make them work? Of course. Lots of people amend beds and do things to make plants work. But the average home gardener isn't doing that. And they are going to plant them in their gardens under the presumption that they're native to this region of the state and they'll work. And when they inevitably die in Houston because we went from drought to flood within a week, they're going to get frustrated by the fact that they planted native plants and the plants just didn't work. Or the gardener will say that they, they killed it. In reality, the plant just had no business being grown in a garden in Houston. So these are just some of the scenarios are where I find that the push for growing regional native plants problematic. There's no there there. You can't grow a diverse, regionally adaptive landscape if the plant material isn't available. So what is a native plant? Even more fun to argue in the gardening world is what is considered a native plant? Generally, it is a species that existed in a location before pre-Columbian times and functioned as part of the ecosystem as a whole. Some would argue that even the native peoples throughout the Americas were introducing and moving plants around, and yes, that's true, but I don't know if we have a grasp on how much that occurred and how much led to complete ecosystem overhauls. And if you do know that, please send me the papers to read. I'd love to know. There are definite disjunct plant populations within Texas that occur in a couple locales and then random locales in South America. Both are considered native populations. But how do they get there? Good question. That said, we do know European colonization contributed to a massive destruction of native plant species and ecosystems over the last 400 years. So it's pretty easy to pinpoint Europeans as a source of our issues now. 
And the introduction of non-natives is ongoing now within the horticultural industry. A global movement of plants in short amount of times is bound to have consequences, not just in the US. Okay, so let's narrow this down just a little bit. On social media, blogs, and even in magazines, you're very likely to come across listicles that announce things like top 10 plants for your native plant garden. Invariably, there will be a host of generic native plants, which are probably good plants on the whole, and maybe one or two regional plants. And one plant that comes to mind for me is purple coneflower, Echinacea purpurea. Purple coneflower is native to a wide swath of eastern North America. However, in Texas, it is only native to a few counties in north northeast Texas, part of the state, and is relatively rare. And yet, yeah, in every box store and native plant nursery, you are likely to see a purple coneflower for sale in Texas. Purple coneflower is a perfectly fine plant. I have one in my own garden, and it's not escaping or expanding its range in Texas because of its introduction into gardens. But if you were someone wanting regional native plants, you wouldn't be planting this one, would you? But what's the alternative? The native echinacea species in our state are much harder to find in cultivation, and typically you had to find them at a native plant sale put on by one of the various native plant groups or an environmental group in the state. Maybe seasonally at a specialized nursery. Certainly not in bulk. Sure, you can find seeds online, but then you would also need to have the know-how to look for those seeds. And again, most gardeners aren't tracking down that sort of thing. So the flip side of this would be the recent reconsideration of Gallardia pulchella, blanket flower, as not being native east of the Mississippi. It's very common in Florida, especially along roadsides and beach landscapes, and for years it's been sold as a native plant. Recent research uh, shows that the historic record just does not support that the plant was in these landscapes pre-European contact. So while FAN, the Florida Association of Native Nurseries, the Florida Native Plant Societies and other entities aren't totally doing away with recommending the plant to home gardeners because it isn't invasive and is considered Florida friendly. They're definitely pulling back from recommendations to use it in any kind of ecosystem restoration work. So here we have two entwined issues that we can pull apart and apply in multiple plants throughout the country. One, plants that are recommended widely as native to a broader region or even half the country, when in reality, they're not native to many of those regions. And two, plants that are thought to be native to a broad range and in reality are only native to a more specific region. So how should we be really thinking of native plants? Should we be splitting it in between how plants are used for gardening versus ecosystem restoration? Does it even matter what a gardener plants? What are the consequences, if any, down the line? And I'll talk a little bit more about this. So native plants and media. So on the listicle thread that I was just talking about, some of these native plant problem goes back to how native plants are shared and talked about on social media and in magazines, books, radio shows, podcasts. In books and magazines, they're definitely heavily skewed towards plants from the Midwest or Mid-Atlantic region. And yes, there are definitely regional books and Texas has its share, but there's problems with those too. I feel like California and the desert states manage to sneak by this problem a little bit because it's such a different habitat type, but that they've built out decent media to cover their ecological niches better. But maybe that's just my perspective looking in. If you're from that area, definitely open to knowing how your books and magazines handle native plant communication for gardeners. For roughly half of the country, there is heavy media influence disseminating out information to gardeners from the horticultural industry that is coming from the Midwest and those mid-Atlantic states. 
I got a little grumpy a few months ago when a designer online that I respect and pushes envelope on native plant gardening, when they made some comments about zinnias not being native and only being a nectar source for generalist pollinator species and not a floral post plant at all. There were two reasons I was grumpy. The first that was that while I know they weren't talking about zinnia elegans, the common garden zinnia that we see in flower beds throughout the US and the world, however, it is native to Mexico. And if you're someone who believes that plants don't acknowledge borders, then growing them in the southwestern US wouldn't really be that far fetched. Which brings me to an actual zinnia native and to Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Texas, Xenia grandiflora, which is the other part of my grumpiness. Broad statements like that just aren't true and aren't worth making without considering your audience. And in this case, it was the designer who might really only design for one area, but has a broad audience beyond their area. So social media has made the accessibility of native plants far broader than it used to be even a decade ago with blogs and certainly broader than 30 years ago with magazines and PBS garden shows, which were all we had to access gardening content outside of our local native plant society. So it behooves those on social media espousing the virtues of native plants to know their audience. Even if you're a niche native plant garden designer, you will attract folks interested in what you have to say outside of that. And generalizations don't really work. Not only are you failing the audience, you're Failing the native plants that are available in other regions of the country that may actually provide the wildlife habitat value that you say doesn't apply. There's something to be said for the work that many folks have done to shine a light on our local ecosystems on social media, especially the folks working in the South, which has far too long suffered neglect in the gardening world. But I often wonder how far that reach actually is and what the greater impacts are to gardeners and the horticultural industry. I tend to find far more value in the educational information coming from botanists and ecologists sharing their work than from most mainstream gardeners or designers when specifically talking about native plants. The horticulture and media industry is very far behind in the native plant realm. So moving onward a little bit to native home gardens versus habitat restoration. By far, I think most home gardeners are not habitat restorationists. And despite Doug Tallamy's homegrown national park efforts and social media campaigns, the majority of home gardeners don't have the time, money, or inclination to convert their front yard to pollinator habitat. Sure, some folks attempt to do the redesign of their yards, and there are some stellar examples out there, but most gardeners are going to purchase a plant or two that is marked as pollinator friendly or native down at their local garden center and plop it in their flower beds or a container and call it a day. And many of the folks who have spent the time to convert their entire landscapes into a native landscape, habitat landscape have taken years to work on it, unless they've hired a designer and installer to do it. And that's definitely more money than people are willing to put into it a lot of the time. So they are working with their own skills and know-how and whatever level that is. I think we also need to acknowledge that while our gardens can be considered habitat, we have to also consider the impact of one suburban front or backyard and what it's actually doing overall ecosystem-wise, which is where I think the homegrown national park idea isn't quite adequate. Or maybe I'm just not as optimistic that we will be converting and changing people's minds to do more with their yards than a St. Augustine lawn. How good of a native plant garden is it if you're an island of ecosystem in a desert of lawn? What good is it to the wildlife there if there's no connectivity to other native ecosystems? 
Which brings me to what I think we really should be focusing on, and that is larger tracts of intact ecosystem restoration. This is something I'm brewing up in my head as well to think about and expound upon later. And well, it's going to take me some time to formulate. But the bigger idea is that since there is a rather large interest within gardening communities to restore native plants to the home garden, we should be organizing and working to protect larger tracts around land around us. We should be building corridors of ecosystems around the new highways and big box stores going in as cities, as cities ooze out into rural areas. Homes are going to be built no matter how much someone protests, but we should be demanding the natural areas and parks to be buffers around them. I realize this is a larger issue and requires a lot more effort than a pithy social media set of meme posts or how to do something at home, but we really need to be scaling up our activism. All the native plants planted in the gardens of what is in reality a really niche gardening community in the grand scheme of things isn't going to do the massive changes needed to protect the diversity of flora and fauna we're losing at a rapid rate. Throwing in some muley grass isn't going to do much when you just lost some rare native orchids to a highway. We can do both, planting that muley and protecting the orchids, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that a 0.1 acre of prairie habitat in that sea of lawn is doing anything for a species being wiped away by cement. This is where I urge people to follow the botanists and ecologists who are showing you what these habitats look like and why I'm constantly harping on gardeners to take a walk at a local park or preserve. You have to see what's around you to even understand how your gardens interact on a larger scale. And again, I'll have more to say on the subject later once I've thought a little bit more about how I want to word all of that. So where do you find native plants? And I, I've done an episode about native plants and seeds before, but this will expound a little bit on that topic. So first off, you know, if you're new to native plant gardening, you've relied on big box stores for plants, definitely you should be branching out. A lot of plants sold at big box stores, even some that are native, are oftentimes drenched with systemic insecticides. So even if you brought milkweed for your monarch caterpillars, there's a good chance you are just going to end up killing them because the systemic insecticide is still within the plant system. And you can't always trust the plant tags saying they are pesticide free. So get on good old Google Maps and type in native plant nurseries and see what's around you. There's likely not going to be a strictly native plant nursery, but you will most likely find some native plants for sale tucked in among all the other plants at the nursery you find. Here in Houston, we have a very well-known native plant nursery that is really good with marketing, but the majority of their plants sold are not native. Do they have a decent selection? Yes. But name and marketing has eclipsed the actual product availability. You can visit these places and ask for the plants you want to purchase. If they aren't available at the nursery, oftentimes they can contact the wholesaler and purchase from them and order something specific you're looking for. When you are looking at native plants to purchase, look at the pots for multiple plants within that pot. Sometimes you'll only get one plant, but often there will be many plants in that pot, which means you could easily divide those plants out once you get home into the garden. It's definitely more bang for your buck. And if you know what you're doing, certain plants can be divided by roots anyway, such as grasses. Again, more plants for that cost of the single pot, and those prices are rising like everything else these days. Bring your phone. Look up a plant that is on the shelf purported to be native. I'm familiar with most of the plants that would be sold in my area, but sometimes there'll be something I'm not familiar with, and a quick search online will let me know if it's native or not. Resources like the Ladybird Wildflower Center or the Missouri Botanic Garden Plant Fighter will be a valuable asset in ascertaining what you are purchasing as native, hybrid, or cultivar. 
Tags are often wrong at nurseries and plants get put in the wrong places by workers and customers. So where do you go when you've exhausted the native plant nurseries around you? The next step would be look up native plant sales at botanic gardens and native plant societies. There are often spring and fall plant sales, and if you have the time and inclination, you can hit up several over the course of a couple of weekends. Often they put their plant lists online beforehand, and you can figure out what you need to focus on and get those when you arrive. After that, online resources out there are where to go, and often that means you have to start plants from seed. There are more options for seed availability for some plants than there is nursery stock for those plants, which is definitely frustrating. And native plant seed can be more difficult to work with if you're unfamiliar with what is required of a seed to germinate. I think this is a huge barrier to gardeners, in my opinion, and one of the steps that needs to be addressed by everyone expressing the need for regional natives to be grown in home gardens. Many native seeds need periods of cold and moist stratification, something we can mimic in our fridges if we're starting them out of season, or we can set them outside in late fall and let nature do that work. Others need to be scarified by burning, something we can sometimes mimic by putting seeds in boiling water for a few minutes to loosen up the outer part of the seed. But do we really expect most home gardeners to be doing this? Only the hardcore plant folks really get into that. But truly, growing from seed is where you're going to be able to find the diversity to add to your landscape. And my favorites are Prairie Moon, which is a Minnesota-based company, and Native American Seed, which is Texas-based. But if you're careful, you can find quality seeds that aren't exorbitantly priced on Etsy or eBay. But for those two, you should definitely be wary of vendors who sell poached plants or seeds that are protected under state or federal laws. There's definitely online plant vendors who do ship native plants. Um, Mail order natives is one I've seen mentioned often, but they're often quite out of stock due to demand. And you'll absolutely run into great native plant nurseries online who just will not ship to Texas and other states due to their ag laws. So either they don't want to go through the process of getting the certifications to ship to our states or they just won't ship it at all, which is extremely frustrating because often those places will have plants that are native here, but you just that you can't find anywhere else for sale in Texas. It actually drives me bonkers when I run into that. See these great plants and great places and go to look at their shipping and will not ship to Texas. And the final way to get native plants is get to know a native plant gardener who's willing to share plants or seeds with you. Many native plants will seed prolifically and gardeners are always happy to share. I mean, don't ask someone you just met on Instagram to send you seeds, but if you get to know someone over a few months and you've talked plants, then by all means, ask if they're willing to trade seeds with you or anything like that. There are also native plant trading groups on Facebook, so check those out. I recently shared frostweed and false nettle plants with folks in a gardening group on next door because I had a ton of seedlings coming up in my pathway. You know, I could have composted them or planted them somewhere else, but I knew someone would want them. So I potted them up and posted them and a few folks came by to get them. So that's a great way to meet other gardeners and get them some plants that they may not have known about to begin with. And frostweed is an excellent nectar source for a host of insects in the fall, and false nettle is a larval host for the red admiral butterfly. So all of this kind of goes back to the general public and native plant knowledge. I think the recent use of the term plant blindness entering our vernacular within the last decade has shown a floodlight onto just how many people ignore plants within the ecosystem. In reality, I think we have a bigger issue. I think we have ecosystem blindness because if you go a bit deeper, you can see the fear that comes from people when talking about insects and snakes. The most gregarious fauna are often what we see projected to protect 
those that find themselves zoos or nature documentaries. And of course, we should be protecting and educating folks on polar bears and penguins, but does the general population know about red cockaded woodpeckers, the Houston toad? A decent amount will have heard about the Texas horn lizard, and in central Texas, you probably know about the golden cheek warbler, but then again, maybe not. You know, insert any one of the numerous federal and statelessed species in everyone's backyard throughout the U.S., and you've got something worth protecting around you. As for plant blindness, in my own life, I run up against folks in my own community who don't understand the value of native plants or why certain plants are there to provide cover for wildlife. They aren't alone in their thinking that a nice landscape is a clean appearing landscape, one devoid of a lot of undergrowth or diversity. It's why there are so many highly maintained lawns. So I know that many of us have done a lot of self-educating and a natural byproduct of that is educating our friends and family and converting them to native plant gardening. A lot of folks that are reeled in by the desire to attract the more popular pollinators like monarch butterflies, they're then hooked into looking more widely from there. But what do we do about every other person who isn't interested and will never be interested in native plants or gardening for that matter? What is the percentage of converts we need to make native plant landscaping work at the scale that Doug Tallamy wants it to be? How do we even convert the troops of landscaping crews throughout the country when they can't even trim crepe myrtles correctly? So when you zoom out from that tiny plant bubble, because we truly is a native plant bubble, you realize just how much of an apple battle we're facing. People drive by at 65 miles per hour and lament the loss of yet another corner lot going down to build a gas station, which they're generally powerless to do anything about. But do we actually think that acres of habitat lost are going to be made up of the fact a handful of dedicated native plant enthusiasts are planting out their home landscapes with some native plants? I would hope something is better than nothing, but what if the something isn't the same as what was destroyed? So where do we go from the here? (sighs) I've got a few points outlined, kind of summarizing everything. So one, I think growing a garden with any kind of generalist pollinator plant is not a bad place to start, and we should be acknowledging this step in the right direction. We shouldn't be shaming people for growing zinnias or for growing what is being provided by the horticulture industry when the horticulture industry refuses to provide anything better. We should realize that most gardeners are not die-hard enthusiasts and aren't spending the amount of time and energy in their gardens as some of us do, and we can't expect everyone's circumstances to be the same. Two. So that said, since Garden Media has stepped up their use of recommending that gardeners grow native plants, the horticulture industry needs to show up with a product. And not just at the wholesale level. It needs to be available in nurseries open to the public. It needs to be accessible enough with the latest miscanthus or Nandina cultivar. Give us andropogons and native ilexes. Give us vernonias and liatris. Give us some freaking native milkweeds. Be truthful about labeling and drop common names that mislead gardeners into believing a plant is native. Three, if we're going to push the local ecosystem habitat garden ethic, I think the horticulture industry and garden media needs to do better about showcasing and educating folks on the diversity of habitats around them. The wild prairie look is deeply popular for a good reason, but we have to realize that sometimes the habitats our homes were built on weren't prairie habitat. Sometimes their habitats were pine rockland or a maritime hammock or wetland or part of the big thicket. Heck, the prairie might actually be a grassland or a savanna. You should plant your habitat accordingly. Four, we have to come to terms with the fact that native plant gardening, especially hardcore native plant gardening, is a minority niche, both within the gardening world and within the general population. 
The landscape level changes that need to happen aren't going to happen in home gardens at the scale needed. Overcoming plant and ecosystem blindness is something we should be talking to everyone we know about. Five, see beyond your own yard and subdivision. Go to a local natural area and go for a hike. Walk slowly and start noticing the ecosystem as a whole. What is growing there? What is native and non-native? I cannot recommend enough to get some field guides or downloading the iNaturalist and Seek app to start identifying those things that make you go, hmm. That's where the curiosity develops into learning and how you can develop your garden into better habitat. Six, get involved. Whether it is your local native plant society or Audubon chapter, join in and see what is being talked about. The pandemic has really opened up a lot of the availability of monthly meetings to folks who cannot attend in person every month, which means a lot of valuable talks are accessible to people who wouldn't otherwise have them. Many are being archived on YouTube or Facebook by those groups, so check out your chapter for more information. Seven, and to branch off that topic about getting involved, we need to be more organized as a gardening community. The plights of Bell Bull Prairie in Indiana and Split Oak Forest in Florida and many others just like it are right in our backyards. There is valuable habitat being threatened daily by development and some places will disappear without us ever knowing the ecosystem services they provided. A lot of work was done historically in Texas by the likes of Ned Fritz and Geraldine Watson and Lance Rozier and many more to protect the forests of East Texas from logging. It takes a coalition of people to go up against both businesses and government agencies to protect land and species and it takes money. And what is seemingly protective forever, like splitting forests, can be taken away decades later by unscrupulous officials down the line. In Texas, we need more conservation easements for private landowners managing their properties for the environment. We also need more protected public lands and to identify environmentally endangered lands, much like Florida does. In Houston, what good is establishing a native garden or two in a subdivision if the subdivision was built on top of the Katy Prairie? This is what I mean when I say we need to protect the lands as they already are instead of trying to hodgepodge something together after the fact. Eight, lastly, vote. Vote at the ballot box and vote with your dollars. Support the people growing the native plants for you to purchase and support the people running for office who are going to protect the environment. So I know all of that might not be totally cohesive, but I worked on it for a few months trying to put my thoughts together. And as someone who loves to grow native plants, I'm just constantly disappointed by what I see available. The disconnect between what we are saying to do and what can actually be done with the plant pallets for sale is vast. And that just led me down the rabbit hole of wondering if we're putting a band-aid on a gaping wound. I have more thoughts about the protection of land outside of gardening that, you know, that maybe I will elaborate on in the coming months. Um, but I know I've left some things out, but feel free to email me or comment on the website uh, with your thoughts. I would love to hear them. If there's someone in the garden industry willing to share this message or help me make this message a little more widespread, I would definitely love to be in contact with you. Um, I, I think we have a lot of work to do and we need to be pushing harder as gardeners for what we want and demanding it. So until then, I'll be over here with my banana trees and my brugmansias and gingers, as well as my frostweed and germander and sedges and bald cypress and dwarf palmettos and trying to do the best I can to provide the habitat I can for what's here. You can find this post and everything else in the show notes at thegardenpathpodcast.com. Feel free to email me thegardenpathpodcast at gmail.com if you've got thoughts or leave a comment on the post for this on the website. I would definitely love to hear more. 
Thank you all for listening. And until next time, happy gardening.